You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Well, good morning. Good to see you all. My name is Josh. I haven't met you before. I'm the pastor here. We live in a culture of excess. Uh, just nonstop access to everything that we want. All you can eat buffets, nonstop media on demand, on our devices, anywhere we want to go, we've got access to it. Everything. We're, we're binge people, binge eaters, binge, binge watchers, binge scrollers, binge uh, buying, binge living. Our cultural motto is treat yourself. That's our motto. <laughs> But more of what we want does, is, is, is not solving our problem. It's not um, satisfying the craving within us. Actually, sh- studies are showing this. It's not fixing our problems, having access to more of the things we desire. It's actually causing a lot more problems in, um, in, to do with our joy, to do with our financial stability. Um, there's problems that are coming along with our health, our marriages, our relationships, even our, our attention span. If you didn't know this, between 2004 and 2007, the average human attention span dropped from about 10 seconds to under three. Under three. Well, the attention span of a goldfish held constant at 3.2. Not making that up. Do you know what happened in 2007? Facebook, a couple other things. The iPhone. Yeah, what was that? Yeah, YouTube. All these things came out around there, and we started just scrolling, training our minds. Um, Today, we're going to talk about the lost art of self-control. This this, uh, self-control really does, it epitomizes the Christian virtue in in the midst of our fallen world, and mastering this self-control is one of life's greatest challenges. One author defined self-control as this... uh, that important, impressive, nearly impossible practice of learning to maintain control of the beast of oneself like that. Self-control is having control of our own actions, our thoughts, our desires, and our passions. We're the ones with the hands on the rein. That's what it means. Some of us, we have more of this. Some of us, less. Some of us know people who have very little of this. Some of us, we know people, you probably like me, know people who just seem to have like this in acres. Like, I'm like, where are you getting all this self-control? Were you born with it? And we can look at them and go like, oh man, I'll never have self-control like that guy. Like, it's just some naturally occurring thing. It isn't. Self-control is a discipline. And, and, and I'll say this, disciplines can be learned. They can. And in fact, this might be controversial, it must be learned if we're going to live the Christian life. I'll explain more of that as we go on. For now, if you don't have your Bibles open, you need your Bible open here at Praxis, go ahead, open it to Proverbs. We're going to hop all over the place, but it'd be helpful to have one. Hopefully you got a Proverbs book as well on the way in, one of our sermon series guides. At the back of that, there's a spot for notes if you're a note-taking type. Um, While you do that, open those up. I'm going to open us in a word of prayer, and uh, we'll continue on in this topic of self-control. Father, thankful for this time to gather and Fix our mind back on these high truths that we've been singing, your pursuit of us, of Christ's sacrifice for us. And 
We thank you that through his death and sacrifice, we've been called into this life of discipleship to Jesus. And as we open the word this morning, I pray that you would call us forward in our discipleship, shape our thinking so that our actions and our lives would be shaped in light of the truth that your scripture presents. And so this morning, as we talk about the many instances where self-control comes up, we pray that, Spirit, you would come and, and, and reveal that in a deeper way to all of us. We all need it. I need it. And I ask for your empowerment now as I open the word. And we pray in the great name of Jesus. Amen. All right, if you're just joining us in this series, we're working through Proverbs, a book written by Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived apart from Jesus, to his son, who is one day going to be king. But this isn't a book just for Solomon's son. We're not just like breaking into other people's mail and reading it here. This was also written by the Holy Spirit and preserved for us. And so this is for all sons and daughters of God. And it contains instruction on how to live life as God designed it to be lived. And so we read the, the book of Proverbs for the same reason that Solomon's son did, to gain wisdom for the many different areas of life so that we could live life the way God um, meant it to be lived. Um, the, proverb, the book of Proverbs contains Proverbs on a whole variety of topics. We've talked about many. We've talked about our words. We've talked about work. We've talked about anger. We talked about parenting last week, and thank you for coming back after that. Um, um, yeah, uh, today we're going to continue on talking about self-control. And this is a topic that Proverbs speaks to pointedly, but it's also one that kind of runs through and, and inside of every other topic that it talks about. Quite literally, the, the topic of self-control is on every page of the book of Proverbs. If we were to start at the very beginning, Proverbs 1.8, it says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction. It opens saying, hear. And, and Solomon, is what he's saying is, you know, you can hear, but he wants him to hear, really hear. If you're a guy in the room and you're married, you've learned that not every time you hear, you're hearing. That's what he's talking about. Because noise can get in your head and rattle around and not get into your brain. He wants his son to not just hear the call of wisdom. He wants him to hear it. So he says, hear my son. Um, I'll give you a couple examples here of different things he warns of. Because um, Solomon wants him to hear it because Solomon learned a lot of his wisdom just by going through the school of hard knocks. Going through, getting a master's degree in the university of life. One of them, he warns his son about a quarrelsome wife. A couple different um, great proverbs. Um, better live on a corner of a house, of your roof, than inside with a quarrelsome wife. Um, a quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping. How did he learn this? By way of 700 wives, okay? And 300 other like secondary wives. He's, there's probably a lot of quarreling going on in that house. He's like, hey son, I would spare you all of this. Trust me, marry one woman, right? Many different areas that Solomon has done this. He presents wisdom, but it's gonna take hearing and heeding it to not have to learn it experientially, to do that, it's going to take self-control. Proverbs 3, we read this. My son, don't lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. If you've got this open in your Bible, underline discretion. I'll come back to it in just a sec. Don't lose sight of wisdom and discretion. There'll be a life for your soul, an adornment for your neck. Then you'll, like they're bling. Then you will walk on your way securely and your foot won't stumble. 
that word discretion I said to underline there, it's the ability to determine whether or not something should be said or done. That's self-control over our actions and our words. He's saying, get it. Get that. Learn to regulate your actions and your words. Don't lose sight of that. If you get it, you'll walk on your way securely. Your foot won't stumble. Later on in Proverbs, we read this. Oh, simple ones, learn prudence. This word prudence, another really a great word. Prudence is the Siamese twin of self-control. You could think of it that way. It's the ability to practice reason and examine the potential consequences of our actions before acting. That's what prudence is comes up a lot. Take a look at another verse on prudence here. It says, I wisdom dwell together with prudence. So wisdom is roommates with prudence. Lady wisdom. And she's best friends with discretion. We already read that. Who is is another word for self-control. So what this verse is telling us, if you want to get to know lady wisdom, you got to get to know her friends. Prudence and discretion. Why? Because wisdom in any area of life is going to require Self-control, prudence, discretion, any form of self-control. I'll give you a couple examples of this. If you want to be wise with your money, well, one, we got a class starting tomorrow on uh, financial discipleship. But if you want to be wise with your money, it's going to take self-control, not buying everything you want to buy. If you want to be wise with your words, it's going to involve wisdom and the ability to control what comes out of your mouth. If you want to be wise at work, it's going to involve the self-control of getting up out of the sheets in the morning and showing up to work on time. If you want to be a wise parent, it's going to take heaps and heaps of self-control. All of these topics, they require self-control. Um, it, what it manifests like in each of these areas will take on a bit of a different form, but what is clear is that before we can grow wise in any area that Proverbs speaks to, we are going to need self-control or self-discipline. There's many, many proverbs that speak pointedly to what self-control looks like with regards to these different topics as well. So if I was to present them all, there's a proverb for every topic on what self-control looks like. But let me give you just a couple. The first is with regards to sexuality. Proverbs says, sons, listen to me. Don't depart from the words of my mouth. Keep, keep your way far from her, her in Proverbs 5 and 7 is the adulterous woman. Keep far from her. Don't go near the door of her house, lest you give her honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner and at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline, which is part of self-control. I didn't want to discipline myself, so I just gave it all away. I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers. I didn't incline my ear to my instructors. And now I'm at the, un- or the, um, the um, brink of utter ruin. Proverbs 5 and 7 talk about how to keep away from the allure of sexual promiscuity. Young men are to not just avoid the front of the adulteress's house, but her street and her side of town altogether. We talked about this a little earlier on in the series. But... I'll give you another one. Proverbs speaks with regards to work a lot and, and very pointed verses on what self-control looks like within the, uh, the, the kind of that area of work. It says, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. A slack hand is an undisciplined and unself-controlled hand. 
And he says that the ability to control our hand, to control our effort as it applies to work, actually causes one to be rich, or at least not in poverty. He praises the hand of the diligent, the self-controlled hand. It's on every page of Proverbs. Every page, there's something to do with self-control. But if there was one sort of capstone verse, one one central cornerstone verse that speaks to self-control, I think it would be this one. It says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. And you might look at this verse and go like, why is he likening a lack of self-control to a city without walls? I think it's because it presents two problems, two problems that exist when self-control is lacking. The first, is, if we think about this, is a city without walls. In, in, walls in an ancient city were meant to keep like marauding intruders, um, a foreign army, um, unwanted visitors. They kept them out. So walls kept some things out. Walls also kept some other things in. Maybe your animals. Anyone else have a two-year-old that likes to run, run free? It would keep them in. When you, when you don't have walls, suddenly everything outside can get in and everything inside can get out. And these are precisely what self-control is all about doing. It's about controlling what's inside. Remember, we've talked about this, out of the overflow of the heart, things happen. So we control what's inside, but it's also about controlling what's outside and not letting it get into us. This is... This is what self-control is seeking to do. Control outside, keeping outside things from coming in and inside things from going out. Now, and it's important to note, it's called self-control. Culturally, we like to try to control other circumstances. This is not other control or situational control. The only thing we get to control is us, our response to things. When we figure that out, that's really helpful. Wish I'd learned that much younger. This is what we control. Self-control. And and I'll say this again. I said it at the beginning, and I think it's a bit controversial today. Self-control must be learned if we're going to live the Christian life. The control of ourself must take place if we're to to live the Christian life. You cannot live the Christian life without self-control because our growth in personal holiness is largely determined by our progress in self-discipline. And I say that's controversial because today in the church, there's, there's many who would push back against this call for self-discipline. Many would hear a call towards regulating um, what comes in or out of us as legalism. You know, don't do that. It sounds like legalism to some. Or do this. Make yourself do this. That sounds like works to some. But the job of a disciple is to become like our master and Jesus did some things and didn't do some other things. If we're going to be like him, we're going to need to be self-controlled. We need to follow his examples. There are some that uh, argue that any spiritual regulation is an attack on our liberty in Christ. This perspective has resulted in many Christians having virtually no self-discipline, living lives where they continually succumb to foolishness and temptation, In in many people's minds, Christianity is simply something that we believe, not something that transforms the way we live. And as a result, there's instances where people have been believers for years, sometimes even decades, who have not developed the self-control necessary to fight sin, to 
resist temptation, and live the lives God has called us to. And we read this in the scripture. It says, as he who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all of your conduct. All of it. If we're his, we're called to be like him, holy in all of our conduct. And this is important to hear. That is not going to happen by accident. You're not going to just wake up holy one day. That's going to take self-control. That's going to take self-discipline. The biblical concept of self-discipline involves exerting authority over our actions and desires. It's the self-mastery over our thoughts, our actions, our words. It's, um, it's practically resisting our self-indulgent and you know, in, impulsive desires. It's, it's growing in personal holiness and discipleship to Jesus, and that requires self-control. If there is no discipline, there's no discipleship. Self-discipline is the way of discipleship. It is. Self-discipline is the way of discipleship. The, if, the only thing we control is ourselves. If we don't control ourselves, we are in trouble. We're in trouble. If we don't have self-control, we won't control our anger. If we don't have self-control, we won't grow wise in our spending. If we don't have self-control, we won't con- you know, control our eating, our leisure, or any of our other desires. If we don't master ourselves, we will become mastered by something else. And if we can't master ourselves, we won't master anything else. If we can't master ourselves, we won't become like our master. Self-control, self-discipline, must be learned if we're going to live the Christian life. I'll give you a couple verses. First Corinthians, Paul says this. He says, don't you know, in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run to get the prize. Don't run to like lose the race. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. If you know any high-level athletes, they literally control everything. They're like weighing their food um, precisely when they get up, when they go down, they're, they're tracking their water on their watch all day long. They're making sure they've burned enough calories so that they're running a caloric deficit. They're like meticulous in their training. So every athlete exercises self-control in all things. That's what extreme athletes do. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, though, some dumb trophy. We do it for an imperishable reward. So Paul says this, I don't run aimlessly. He's not like, we're not out for a jog. We're in a race. I don't box as one beating the air. I'm not in the gym like shadow boxing, pretending I'm boxing someone. I'm actually in a spiritual battle. So I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I should become disqualified. We're, this isn't practice. This is the real thing. And Paul is calling us to grow in personal holiness that comes by way of self-discipline. And And there's a couple things that I think this presumes, if we take a look and just what's been presented to us in this text, presumes at least least two things. One is that there is something in us that needs to be restrained. There's a tendency in us where, you know, towards something that would keep us from what we're actually to go towards. And Paul says you need to restrain that. You need to exercise control over it. But it assumes something else is that it assumes that it's actually controllable. We are able to control it, to fight against that urge. So there's something in us, there's like an inner desire that's not us. 
There's another part of us that can actually control it. That's an important distinction because today we're taught that everything we, we feel is who we are at the core of our being. Paul would say that that desire and those feelings and all of those impulses, they're separate from who we are and who we actually are needs to exercise control over those things. Now, what I will say is that self-control isn't unique to Christianity. This idea of self-control isn't, a, well, it is a Christian idea, but you find it all over. I, I want to share seven quotes with you about self-control, and then what I want to do is I want to talk about what makes Christianity's perspective on self-control unique. I like these quotes, though, and I think there's things we can, we can learn from them. The first quote is from Plato. He said, the first and best victory is to conquer self. To be conquered by self is, of all things, the most shameful and objectionable. So, ancient philosopher. His contemporary um, said this, Aristotle, I count him braver who overcomes his desires than him who conquers his enemies. For the hardest victory is over the self. It's also the most important, but it is the hardest as well. Moving on, um, Frederick Nietzsche, he said, he who can't obey himself will be commanded. That's the nature of living creatures. If you can't master yourself, you're mastered by something else. It's just what it is. Even a, a secular, like Friedrich Nietzsche, observes that. Rumi, ancient Sufi mystic, he said, the intelligent desire self-control. Children want candy. I like that one. It's like children, juveniles are just, give me whatever I want. The intelligent desire self-control. Mahatma Gandhi not to have control over the senses is like sailing in a rudderless ship, blown wherever, no ability to control it, that self-control, bound then to break up into pieces and coming into contact with the very first rock. We see, um, moving on, Lao Tzu, founder of Taoism, he said, he who controls others might be powerful, but he who's mastered himself is mightier still. Lastly, um, Roman philosopher, I struggle with his name. It's not Publius, it's Plublilius. Plublilius Cyrus, Roman philosopher, he said this, would you have a great empire? Rule over yourself. Good quotes. I think lots we can learn from them, all of them non-Christian. And so I want to just go, what's unique about how Christianity views self-control? Then, Because there's all sorts of writing, many books, some of them I've read have come out in the last couple of years, all about the need for self-control. What makes Christianity's perspective on self-control different? What makes our practice of self-control different than the person who's waking up, doing cold plunges, you know, reading discipline as destiny, timing his day out, counting his calories? What's different about Christian discipline? Well, two things. One, what self-control does and secondly, where self-control comes from. This is what makes Christians' perspective of self-control very different. What it does, where it comes from. Because all religions, all philosophies, they recognize the importance of self-control, but Christianity presents it differently. And I'll, I'll try to explain it here. In every religion and philosophy, self-control is something an individual must exercise in order to obtain salvation. And I'll get very specific here. In Islam, the way that you will achieve salvation is if you observe through the power of your own self-control all of the laws within it, the restrictions, and the commands to do things. 
You save yourself. In Islam, self-control is the currency that purchases salvation. In Buddhism, which doesn't really adhere to the same idea of heaven, um, it says, you know, we exist in these endless cycles of death and rebirth. We're all living in a kind of a delusional dream that we need to wake up from. We escape the cycles of samsara. That's the goal of Buddhism. In order to do that, through your self-control, you need to obey the eightfold path, the Dharma chakra, um, which means that you need to maintain a right view, a right resolve, right speech, right conduct, right livelihood, so meaning work, so right job, right effort, right mindfulness, and right meditation. Very literally, self-control purchases your way to nirvana. And it's the same in Mormonism, in Sikhism, in Taoism, in Hinduism, in them all. Any religion you can name, you must save yourself through self-control. In philosophy, it's the same thing. You liberate yourself through your self-control. Christianity views this differently and that it presents salvation as something given to us by grace, not by way of our own effort. It's through Jesus' works on our behalf that we're saved. It's through his observation of the law. It's through his self-control and his self-discipline that we are saved. We couldn't keep the law. We couldn't perfectly do these things. This is Every other religion says, you need to do this. Christianity says, you can't. That's what it says. You're not, you're not able to do this. So Jesus came and did it. What we were not able to. Why couldn't we? Well, because of Adam and Eve's lack of self-control. We inherited a sinful nature, and we're walking in a sinful world, and we're weak. We need rescue. We need someone else to do it for us. This is why Ephesians says, by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so no one may boast. Nobody here deserves salvation more or is doing more to get it. Nobody gets to boast. Because it says, You're a f- you couldn't pull it off. Jesus did it for you. So then what is the place of self-control within the Christian worldview? Self-control in Christianity functions differently in that it doesn't earn our salvation, rather it evidences salvation. Self-control doesn't earn salvation, it evidences salvation. I'll say that again, it's, it's that important. Self-control doesn't earn salvation, it evidences salvation. And let me unpack that idea from you, for you from Titus here. So it says, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. So it's God's grace that brought us salvation. Now what is it doing? It's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. So God's grace came, now it's training us to live self-controlled lives for what? While we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness. Don't miss that part. Jesus died to do what? Free us from lawless living, meaning he saved us to live according to the law. So we're not saved by the law, but we are called to obey it. Self-control doesn't earn salvation. It evidences it. It evidences the fact that we've become his. Salvation isn't earned by self-control. It teaches us self-control. Salvation's by grace. Self-control is done in response to it. We don't 
control ourselves to earn. We do it as an expression of gratitude. It's not something we do to become saved. Self-control is something we do because we're saved. Second Peter gets right to it. So we've been saved. And it says his divine power has given us everything now that we need for a godly life. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness and gave us his very or his precious and very great promises so that through them we might participate in the divine nature. So notice this. He gave us the promise. What's the promise? That we would become like him. So that through these promises that we would be conformed, we may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. So for this very reason then, Make every effort. So you see, effort is a part of salvation. It's just not on the earning side of the equation. It's on the resulting side of the equation. Make every effort. Absolutely, the Christian walk requires effort. Make every effort to add to your faith. What? Aren't we saved through faith alone? Yes, absolutely. But now add to that. He says this. Make every effort to add to your faith, which is what saves you, goodness or virtue, the ESV says. Add virtue, virtue knowledge, knowledge self-control. It needs to be added onto our faith. It doesn't come on the earning side of the equation. It comes on the other side of the equation. Add to your Faith, virtue, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, godliness, brotherly affection, or here it says mutual affection. And then to that, add love. If we possess these things in an increasing measure, they will keep us from being ineffective in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus, unfruitful in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus. This is what the Christian walk is all about, adding these things. You're saved, great. Now add virtue. Knowledge, self-control. But there's more. We'll probably go through that in community groups this week. That is so good. Second Peter 1, 1 through 10, if you want to go read it. There's lots. I committed it to memory, and I'll just like go over it in my head sometimes because it's like a full meal. There's so much to mentally process there, so many great truths for the soul. I commend that to you for reading on your own this week. But let's go on to Galatians. We find out something else about self-control there. It says the fruit of the Spirit, so the thing that the Spirit produces in us is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So we learn something here. The byproduct of becoming a Christian, having the spirit dwell within us, is that self-control becomes a byproduct of our life. And so if we're Christ's, we will be growing in self-control. But notice, we're not producing it ourselves. The spirit's producing it in us. And that that's makes Christianity unique from every other religion and worldview. Every other religion and worldview, you conjure this from within yourself Christianity says the spirit actually deposits it in you. If you're a Christian, Christ died and ascended to heaven to give us the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't live in our heart. According to the scriptures, the Holy Spirit does. And the Holy Spirit is producing these things in us. Self-control. And that's why Romans 8 says this. It says, if you live according to the flesh, if you, you will die. But if by the spirit 
You put to death the deeds of the body. You will live. The the Holy Spirit in us produces self-control, which enables us to put to death the deeds of our flesh. Can we do it on our own? No, but we can do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is in us for this. And in fact, a little earlier in Romans 8, we read this. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit set their minds on what the Spirit desires. The mind, now notice this, the mind governed by the flesh is death. For your mind to be subject to your desires is death. But the mind that's governed by the spirit brings life and peace. Jesus died because we couldn't save ourselves through our own effort and control. Through dying, he gifted us salvation, a new heart, and the Holy Spirit in us who empowers our, the outworking of holiness in our lives. Jesus made us holy, but then it's unpacked in our life. He gave us a new heart so that we would, this would emanate out of us. This self-control that we didn't possess before would now work itself out of us. And this is why in 1 Timothy we read this, is that now we're to train ourselves to be godly. The Spirit of God's in us to do this, to train us to be godly. It says, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Train ourselves for godliness, can I ask, how's the training going? Physical training. Some of you do it here. It has some value, but spiritual training has more. And just as no, you know, we will not grow fit just by accident. Not even if you take steroids, do you just like grow fit? No personal success just happens. No achievement or goal just is, is realized without self-discipline, neither will spiritual growth and maturity happen apart from self-control. Our right standing before the Father is something that Jesus purchased for us. He's made us holy, but that holiness will not be presented before others without our active engagement. It takes effort. Therefore, we must train ourselves. You can put that back up, that's okay. Therefore, we must train ourselves. We mustn't grow flabby in our faith. Turn into spiritual couch potatoes. It takes action. We will not passively become sanctified or made righteous in in word and deed and actions. With physical training, people spend time in the gym. We know how this works. They do reps in order to work off their dad bod and and put on a father figure. It takes time and, and effort to accomplish this. It's about disciplining and controlling our body. And spiritual training is kind of the same. It's about disciplining and controlling our body, but more than that, our spirit. Because the Christian worldview says that we're not just a body. We're a spirit and a body. So what is spiritual development, spiritual maturity, spiritual fitness look like, um, spiritual training? It's both body and spirit. Because we're both body and spirit. Can you be a a, a physical couch potato and a spiritual, um, it's a bad example, but like a Bruce Lee? No, because you're both physical and spiritual. They're connected. 
Do you see that? Physical training is of value. Absolutely. I think the Christian should take care of their body because we're physical. And it probably has a correlation to our spiritual fitness as well. Some people are prone to think, oh, it's just about my spirituality. No, you're also a physical being. Some think it's just about your physical fitness and they ignore their spiritual. No, you're also a spiritual being. It has to overlap into both of them. would cause us then, I think, to ask this. We know what physical exercises are. We know how to, at least in theory, we know how we should take care of our bodies if we want to get fit. But what are the exercises we do for spiritual training? What is Paul practically calling Timothy to do in order to train himself in this verse? Well, just as physical training involves things to do and not do, if you, know, if you know this. So if you work out, you can go pump iron one hour a day, five days a week, and, and not get cut like a magazine. You're going to have to like do some negative caloric intake, restrict what you eat. You have to do things and not do things to, to kind of get really fit. Similarly, spiritual training involves the same thing, doing and not doing certain things. And I'll show you where I get this from. It comes from Ephesians. I'll read a bunch, and then it'll come together at the end. Paul says, now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're, they just listen to whatever they want to do. You need to rule differently. You need to rule yourself differently than them. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of their heart. They've become callous and they've given themselves into sensuality. They're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They live just like those rudderless ships that Nietzsche was talking about. They have no control. Whatever they desire, they go into. But that's not the way you learned in Jesus Christ. Assuming you have heard about him or were taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupted through its desires, and instead be renewed in the spirit of your minds by putting on the new self created after the likeness of God and the true righteousness and holiness. So it's saying two things. Just as in fitness, you do and don't do certain things. In spiritual fitness, we do and don't do certain things. We put off things and we put on things. Let me get practical with this. So just give us some examples here. Food. I got, I got a little ahead of myself, pardon me. If, if we're to put off and we're to put on, I want to ask us first, what is it that if we're to be self-controlled people, we would need to put off? What would we need to stop doing? If, if all of our life is affecting our, our, our spirituality and our discipleship, what is it, if we are both physical and spiritual beings, what is it that we would need to put off in order to be categorized as self-controlled or disciplined? What is that thing? Maybe ask yourself, what do we do too much of? Maybe that's something that scripture forbids or that doesn't belong in a life that's lived in gracious response to salvation that Jesus purchased for us. What is it that if you were to embody self-control that you would need to stop doing? On the contrary, let me ask then, if we're to put off and put on things, what is it 
if you were to embody self-control that you would need to start doing. Disciplines that would build your spiritual strength as well as your physical that would build your faith. If spiritual fitness, to use Paul's kind of metaphor here, involves putting off and putting on, what are we doing or not doing and how is that affecting us? Are we self-controlled? Are we self-controlled? And, and I, if you're wondering where maybe the gap is there, if you ask yourself that, where am I self-controlled? I think what comes to mind when you're like, oh, maybe not that thing? Uh, what makes you question, am I self-controlled? Living out the call of wisdom in Proverbs requires self-control. For every aspect of our lives, it will require self-control. Discipleship to Jesus requires self-control. And so unless we are just going to throw in the towel or try to take that like kind of the cheapened cultural version of Christianity, which is I believe it, but I don't live any of it out. If we're going to come out of there, we're actually going to take our, our faith seriously and grow in it. We're going to need to develop self-control. And, and I want to ask then, or maybe present, I'll say it that way. I want to present a couple ways that I think we could practically do this. I want to make this really practical. To sum up all of the scripture, I think the very first thing that we do if we are to develop self-control over these impulses in our lives is this, is to think differently about those impulses and those desires, those things that we want to indulge in. We need to see things that we're prone to indulge in in a different way. And, and I'll give you an example. Food is a fantastic thing. I love food. But if we eat too much of it, it will destroy us, right? It actually stops becoming the fuel that it's meant to be for our bodies, and it starts to like destroy our body if we put more of it in. Our body can't burn it off. It, it like breaks down our organs. It can have all sorts of negative effects. So we need to think rightly about what food is. I'm giving you an example. We think of food, it's fuel for my body. Here's another one, okay? Sex, fantastic thing. Used incorrectly, though, it can lead to suffering, eternal suffering. Jesus said the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. A good thing used incorrectly leads to negative consequences. Entertainment is enjoyable. It's great reading a novel. It's listening to a great band, watching Top Gear. So good. I love it. However, if I just, like powered entire seasons of Clarkson's farm, suddenly it would actually lead into another thing, which is idleness. Good things that become ultimate things become very toxic things in our life. And we need to learn how to exercise self-control in that. We need to think correctly about them if we're going to exercise self-control in them. And so as we think on our lives in the different areas where maybe we're, we're overindulging and we're lacking self-control. Perhaps thinking correctly about these things can actually enable us to interact differently with them. That's where I'm going. So the first thing, think differently about our indulgences if we want to exercise self-control. Secondly is to, to confess them. Over and over throughout the scripture, we're called to confess these things. True self-control, and we confess for this reason, true self-control is a gift from above. It's produced in us by and through the Holy Spirit. And so we should, as we notice these areas of our lives, bring them to the Lord. We should ask the Holy Spirit for assistance 
pray for help because we believe the Holy Spirit has been given to us for this very purpose. One author I read this week, I love this quote, I'll share it with you. He said, because self-control is a gift that's produced in us through God's Holy Spirit, Christians can and should be the people on the planet most hopeful about growing in self-control. Because it's, it's not just finding it within ourselves, the Holy Spirit produces it. And so we should go to the Holy Spirit with these shortcomings, with the expectation that he will come and, and empower that. It's, it's an effort we bring, but it's, it's as if he comes along and like 10x's our effort. And so if you come and you bring your request to him, the Holy Spirit exists in us to empower that. So we should acknowledge it. We think differently about these areas we're prone to engage in because we're not just physical. Something might appeal to our physicality and be destructive to our spirituality. We need to see this correctly. Then we come and we repent. And then the third thing that I think is just a really helpful way to grow in this necessary self-control the scripture calls us to is this, is to practice little disciplines. Practice little disciplines. Self-control is a gift but not a passively received gift. It's as we engage our wills, the Holy Spirit produces a supernatural deposit within us. Again, you will not grow holy passively. It happens actively. The Holy Spirit, it's like he 10Xs our efforts. It involves effort. Ed Welch wrote a book. He said this, um, as the Hebrews were promised the land. So this is really what the whole Old Testament is about. God chooses a people, promises them a land, and then they go and take possession of it after they're delivered out of Egypt. And it says, as the Hebrews were promised the land but had to take it by force, they needed to go in and dispel the people in order for the land to become theirs. So are we promised the gift of self-control, yet we must also likewise take it by force. If we want to, therefore, be able to control ourselves in the big moments, I think a powerful way to develop this skill is by exercising it in small moments. Getting good at small moments. Practicing controlling ourselves when everything is not on the line. If you're on a sports team, you know this. You practice outside of game day. Why? So that you're good for game day. Similarly, we're to exercise and grow self-control. It's a discipline in order that we can be ready for the moments that really matter. If we're struggling in the big area, we can break it down and we can find smaller areas where we can begin to engage in this. And if you're a student of church history, this is not a new idea. This is a very ancient one, this idea of spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines, practical ways that we can engage to strengthen our our faith and our moral character they fall into essentially two categories of doing and not doing. Disciplines we do, disciplines we don't do. The nerdy technical term for them is disciplines of engagement, things we do, disciplines of abstinence for things we don't do. And there's a variety of different things in each category. So disciplines of engagement, reading your Bible, praying, acts of service, showing up here serving on Sunday. Fantastic things to do. If you're prone to sins where you just like give in to every desire of yourself, kind of that um, Machiavellianism, that inner narcissist, anyone else? Liars. 
If you're prone to that self-serving sin, those sins of omission, not doing what you should, disciplines of engagement are very powerful. Serving other people. Reading. Praying. They combat that nature. So there are other things that we can do practically that take self-control that can strengthen us for something else. On the contrary, the flip side, disciplines of abstinence. If you're prone to sins of commission, doing what you shouldn't do, maybe that's sexual sin, maybe that's overindulging in the lusts of your flesh, the desires of your flesh, the cravings, your food intake, um, alcohol, whatever it might be. If you're prone to sins of engagement or commission, disciplines of abstinence can be powerful ways to build self-control up in preparation for the bigger thing. I'll give you an example, some of the disciplines of abstinence. Um, Literally, sexually abstaining, that's one. Fasting, not doing things that we want to do. Some of them, like eating's not bad. Fasting's not stopping doing something that's bad, but it's stopping something that we can control to develop strength and ability for the things that right now we can't. So maybe you got that thing in your life, you're like, I'm never gonna control that. Yes, you will, because the Spirit's in you, and through practical little disciplines, we can actually develop the muscle needed to lift that bigger weight. Does that make sense? Hopefully. I'm, I'm digging into a really big topic with very little time. I'm sort of painted myself in a corner here. But this idea of fasting is one that I wouldn't mind kind of concluding with in, to a degree. One is because right now we're in the middle of the season of Lent, Some of you have grown up in older church traditions, and this has always been a practice. Some of you, um, this might be a brand new idea. Lent is the 40-day lead-up to Easter, where people, Christians traditionally have fasted for 40 days, from sunrise to sunset. Christians have fasted during Lent. Um, The um, Muslims completely bootlegged that from Christianity in the third century. So that practice of Ramadan is 100% stolen from Christianity. This was a practice Christians did as a way of denying our flesh to strengthen our spirit. Now, you could could try this for all of Lent. I mean, there's Muslims around the world doing this. Lent also started uh, nine days ago on the 14th, and so uh, you're a little late to the game. But could I suggest this, that fasting is a great practice that can help us empower and develop this ability of self-control. When we can restrain something simple like a meal, it can develop the strength for some of the bigger spiritual impulses that sometimes lure us away. If we want to be able to control ourselves in big moments, it could be through small practical steps like these disciplines of engagement or abstinence and really simple ways of engaging in them that we develop the strength by the Spirit's empowerment to face these bigger things. And maybe just the kind of the, the final practical piece, could I call us this week as a way of exercising self-control to not indulge in something? To either do this, not indulge in something that is not wrong, but as a way of saying, I'm not going to be controlled by that. Or, or find something to do that's out of the ordinary that serves someone other than you. Because both of these things together, I think, help us develop this, this character of, of self-control. And as we do that, church, the Spirit is in us, 
to empower and grow this so that we might live up to the commands of Scripture, which is to put to death the deeds of our flesh and be self-controlled people. Let me close this with this. The band's going to come up. I went way off script, trying to figure out how to land this plane here, but I think this is a good way. Hebrews 12. We're commanded to do this. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter. Some of your translations might say this, the author and perfecter, author and finisher of our faith. He started it. His spirit in us will finish it. So look to him the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. That's what Hebrews 12 says. Hebrews 4 tells us that we have a high priest who's able to sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses because he was tempted just like we are. And so regardless of where that struggle lies for you in self-control, we can come to him. And we can come to him with the assurance that if he's begun salvation in us, he will finish salvation in us as well. He humbled himself. He self-controlled himself and died upon a cross so that we could be saved. So that we could have the Holy Spirit and so that you and I could no longer and would no longer be slaves to sin. Amen? Let's stand. Father, I thank you that... You sympathize with us in our weakness, that you've not abandoned us. And in our shortcomings, we, we don't lose our salvation because we didn't earn it. We are held secure by your good works. But we pray that this, this gift of the Holy Spirit that you've given us, by your Holy Spirit, you would empower us to be self-controlled people, to live godly, upright lives in the mixed, in midst of our culture um, so that we could shine as light and so that we could in fully enjoy all that is on hand for us in Christ. We pray now as we worship, you would be glorified and made much of in the great name of Christ by the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen.